Okay, well, this talk started a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> I was on Facebook, which I'm on every day now. When you have a variety of Facebook friends, they expect you to post something every day. I, I have a new job. And it was an amazing statement. It was like just a couple sentences long, no fancy uh, creative uh, illustration to go with it. And what it was was this. The meaning of life is to give life a meaning. The meaning of life is to give life a meaning. And I went, man, that is just so profound and cool. And, and what the hell does it mean? You know? So that was the beginning of this sort of journey to see what life means. And I've come to certain conclusions. And, and, and Google is part of that conclusion. The process of, you know, putting questions in and getting them answered by the Internet is just an amazing process. So here are a couple things that I found. Um, number one, life has no meaning. There we go. Each of us has meaning and we bring it to life. It is a waste to be asking the question when you are the answer. Joseph Campbell. So apparently we're the answer to the meaning of our life. Viktor Frankl. If there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. Very Buddhist. Plato says that the unexamined life is not worth living. But what if we examine life but what if the examined life turns out to be a clunker as well? <laughs> that was Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and of course, we can't leave this out. The ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42. <laughs> that, you know, where do you go from there? So I was doing some research, and I came to some conclusions after reading a lot of stuff written by a lot of people talking about the meaning of life and sometimes the meaning of their life. And there are different kinds of approaches to finding out the meaning of life. And one of them, uh, the one that I used to use, was the hedonistic approach to life before I became a Buddhist. The meaning of life is to fulfill all one's desires. And I'm going, yeah, of course. You know, they've got a new Kindle coming out on the 27th of April that has a battery in the cover. It lasts for months. Now, how can you not want one of those if you have a desire to have a reader with two batteries? And I was thinking back. The meaning of my life, of course, has changed over the years because I have changed over the years. And I can remember at the age of 14... I had two ambitions only, and they gave me purpose and meaning. And the first ambition was to have sex. Now, I was 14, it was 1963, I had no idea how to talk anybody into having sex. <laughs> Even after watching Beach Blanket Bingo, I was still in the dark. You know, and, and thankfully, uh, nature has a course for all of us. And it is designed to get us mating. 
a never-ending course to mate until we die. And out of that comes a few kids. And now we have seven billion. So at 14, I really didn't have to worry about it at all, but at 14, those things become important. The second purpose, the second meaning, the second thing, I wanted to live to the year 2000. This was 1963, and I, was a, I love science fiction. And I imagined the year 2000 to have so many things it didn't have. Flying cars, you know, transportation to other universes or at least planets. And all we did in the year 2000 was worry about the computers not working. <laughs> and planes just sort of falling out of the sky. So needless to say, the purpose of my life changed dramatically over the years from where it started and to where it is today. So material things, being hedonistic, wanting to satisfy all the desires pushes most of us. It's like chasing the carrot. And we just never are fully satisfied when we finally do achieve the satisfaction of having one of our desires met because it's temporary. It doesn't last forever. And then the next desire arises. And if we don't do it ourselves, somebody else does it for us. It's a never-ending process of looking and satisfying desires. Now, there's another part of it, too, Stoicism. So I'm reading about Stoicism. Stoicism, having a meaningful life means to have moderate desires, which is sort of like the middle path, I suppose, but, but as a Buddhist, no desire is good, you know. To have a really happy life, you have no desires at all if you're into Stoicism. So I'm thinking, okay, desires, that's, you know, I mean, Buddha hit that before they did. And, and it's like, yeah, the desires, man, those are the things that just drive us nuts. And then, does life have meaning when it is connected to desire for a Buddhist? So, 19... 79, 1978, right around there, you know, I woke up like any other day and realized I'd be dead. And I went, geez, what kind, what have I been taking? What am I drinking? What kind of work am I doing? Why did I wake up and feel this way about my life? So I quit smoking, I joined a gym, I started to read, I figured religion might be a good way to die. I bought a book, Houston Smith, World Religions, Now I Can Die Well, I said to myself, because I read this book in the chapter on Buddhism twice. But just to ensure that I would die well, I decided to meditate. I figured I probably needed to do something, participate in life, so I could participate in my death. And I found International Buddhist Meditation Center right down the street, and there was Shinzen Young, and he was like there talking about stuff that I had never even thought about. And I'm thinking, whoa, this guy is really cool. I really want to see the world the way he does. I want to be able to explain it the way he does. And of course we can't, because we explain it the way we do, not the way he does or they do. But he got me going, and then he left. See, they always leave. You know, they, they just don't stay. He started his own center, and then he went to India and did a Goenka retreat. Then he really changed. Then he had a center in New Mexico, and he just sort of went further and further away. Then he ended up in Vermont on a lake or something. 
But I'm still here, and I'm still practicing, and I'm still reading, and I'm thinking, yeah, okay, now, the meaning of my life right now is suffering. Because I woke up, and I realized that I had to die, and it created a whole lot of suffering, because suffering happens when you don't want it to be the way it is, when you want it to be different, when you want it to be your way. So I started suffering. And thankfully, the Buddha, in the first half of all his talks, always talked about why we suffer. So not only did I suffer in one way, I suffered in hundreds of ways that I started to embrace. And I'm looking at the world and I'm thinking, this world will never be any good at all. It never has been and never will be. As long as I'm here, I'm just going to have to suffer. And maybe there's some benefit of suffering. I still haven't found that. But I'm going to have to suffer. So the meaning of my life at the age of 28, was suffering. But I continued, because I knew I had to die. I was now approaching 30. I'd be dead soon. (laughs) I'm going to die well. And then the meaning shifted. It wasn't the meaning wasn't life is suffering. The meaning was I can end the suffering. That there was some guy out there 2,600 years ago, I thought to have really existed, who left behind these sort of cryptic at first, but very plain and useful texts of his talks telling me how he ended his suffering. And if I wanted to end my suffering, I couldn't do it his way, but he could tell me how he did it, and then I could figure out how I could do it. So, meaning of life for a Buddhist, end suffering. Wow. But how do you even start? You know, what do you do? And it's, does they, they always say the foundation of our practice is morality. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, morality is really good because we have to live with each other and we have to drive with each other. And we're not going to like each other because we're all so different. We may not even understand each other, but if we're following the five precepts, at least we won't kill them or steal from them or rape them or tell them lies or get drunk with them. We'll just sort of, you know, have our own little foundation of practice and be more morally correct than we used to be. But is that the only advantage to following the five precepts or holding them? As it turns out, after doing more reading, this just blew me away. That the five precepts are the portal to the way, to the Tao, to the stream. That Jung talked about synchronicity. We've all had experiences of synchronicity. We've all been looking for that parking place and then found it. And you go, my gosh. You know, with four million people, we found a parking place. And it's almost like, yeah, I was in the right place at the right time. I was synced into something. I was synced into the flow. And what the morality and what the vows seem to do for a Buddhist is allow us to jump into the stream and get into the flow of things, and things just sort of work out all by themselves, almost intuitively. You know? And as soon as we start thinking about what we're doing and what we want and how we want to do it, then we sort of jump out of the stream, end up on the shore, and nothing goes our way. We're fighting everything. So this sort of moral thing, for me, became this going into the river, 
and just going with the flow and not needing to go to one shore or the other or grab any branches or change the direction. Everything was just fine. It was unfolding in the way it was supposed to unfold. Now, intellectually, I didn't understand it, but I suffered less when I practiced the precepts and I was in the flow. And I suffered more when I broke the precepts and stood on the stood on ground, not in the water. I was going, okay, so what do I need to do now to end my suffering? And what is suffering? And can I ever just look at the world as it's the way it's supposed to be? You know, and if you look at the world, if you follow the politicians, if you read the news, you know it's not the way it's supposed to be. There are far too many people dying who are leaving Syria. There are far too many lies being told in the political race. There are far too many people not getting clean water. India has 19% of the population of Earth and 4% of the water. Man, that just is a trip. The inequalities of our life, why does it have to be that way? Has it always been that way? Do some get all the stuff and the others get none of this stuff? Well, it seems that's the case. It's always been that way. This is no different. So we shouldn't be surprised. As a Buddhist, we should not be surprised if the world sucks because we know it does because our life sucks. And there you go. It's this profound sense of acceptance of the suffering in the world. Now, for 20 years, I was into community service. I would help people in jail and the police department and at UCLA. And I finally had to give it up. I was getting exhausted. Because you help 10 people and 20 more need your help. And you help 20 and 40 more need your help. And after a while, you just look at this thing and you say to yourself, no matter what I do, I am not going to be able to help all the people that need help. We need tens of thousands of people helping. And even then, there will be more that need help than we can serve. So how do you deal with that? And then, as you get really old and start to creak, you know your life is coming to an end and people need to say, okay, let him work on himself now. Because that's the best thing he can do for us, is to work on himself. Let him find a way to die well, so he can be reborn and come back and suffer some more with us and maybe help us. You know what I'm saying? So, I gave up community service. But I went to Facebook. I've at least five posts a day now. Helping all the people who are suffering on Facebook. And they're out there. You can tell by their food pictures they're not having a good life. <laughs> so, in thinking about the Buddhist approach to suffering and meaning to life, can we found, find any happiness in the pursuit of wealth, power, and fame? Can they really give us an ultimate meaning to life. And the problem with wealth, power, and fame is that it blocks our happiness. We'll never be ultimately happy if we're running after those things. And the Buddha said it clearly. A good reputation, the downside is a bad reputation. Gain is wonderful, but loss is sure to follow. Pleasure, absolutely. Pain, inevitably. Praise, yes. It feels really good. Blame, soon to follow. 
So you look at these, this dualistic approach to life, and you go, yeah, I want the one half, but I don't want the other half. And you can't separate one from the other. So, happiness. Let's go there first before we get into the more meaning. Happiness seems to be only permanent if it comes from the inside, not the outside. Because everything we chase and want and feel will make us happy always leads to dissatisfaction because that too is temporary. You know, sooner or later, Disneyland has to close. <laughs> then the workers are happy. You see them. And the patrons are a little disappointed. So after running after all the things that I thought would make me happy, you know, the banjo, the ukulele, all these wonderful instruments, yes, eventually I'll be happy when I can play them well enough to be happy. But how many years does it take to learn to play just one instrument, let alone three or four? And if people that you play for are unhappy because if you're playing, will you ever be happy? I don't know. And then there's all the stuff like on TV and the movies. You know, you spend 15 bucks to have a happy experience. And it's not that way. Very few movies are happy anymore. They're killing each other all the time with car chases and bombs and the villains and the bad guys. And then you say, well, I'm just going to watch some TV. And then you have the car chases and the villains and the bad guys, you know. And you just look at this stuff, and all this stuff is going in your head, and it never leaves. It's recorded forever once it gets inside your head. So I found after meditating for a while, I really need to be careful what I stick in my head, because it's not going away. You know? So when I hear certain politicians talking, I turn it off. I don't want that stuff in my head. I don't want to carry it with me. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to know about it. But, of course, everybody else shares it with me on Facebook, and I can't avoid it. Can we ignore it? Well, we can't ignore it. Can we repress it? Well, we can't. We can do it for a short period of time, but then it comes back and it's twice as powerful. Maybe we can transcend it. Maybe that's the deal. Maybe all the stuff that we're doing right now as a human is just because we have to do it. And the reason we have to do it is because we lost our choice taken away from us. Early on in our life, our choice was taken away. Who were the culprits in the beginning? Our parents. What did they say? No, no, no. All day long, they kept saying no. They never said yes. We'd go in the flour and throw it all over the kitchen. No, no, no. We want to go out and pee on a tree. They go, no, no, no. It's just all the things. So we, where did our choice... Why did it have to stop? And then they sent us to school. So we could conform to all the no's. And yes, we did, but they kept taking all our choices away. You can't do that. That's not the right thing to do. You have to learn algebra. It will be very important to you the rest of your life. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And all these things I didn't want to do, I was forced into doing. And I knew I was never going to use those things, but I needed to be an American, and I needed to have cultural literacy. I needed to know that George Washington cut down the cherry tree. I needed that information, even though it was false and placed there for a moral rather than the truth, just the way it goes. So then I became an adult, and I got a job. 
Well, you know, if you got a job, you got no choices at all because you got bosses and you got CEOs and, and CFOs, and they're all telling you what to do and what you can't do. And then, if you're lucky enough, you get married. Do you get any choices in your marriage? Not really. You just get compromised. We're going to compromise on this. We're going to compromise on that. You can do it this time. I'll do it next time. I know what you think. I think the different blah, 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 blah. Some of us didn't have to go there. Some of us missed that. Some of us are grateful because of that. (laughs) Then you have kids. And what's the first thing you tell your kids? No. Yeah, you're going to form them into a functional, wonderful, happy adult by taking away their choice. Then you find out about meditation. And then you start to sit and watch your mind. And you start to see all the stuff, all the ways you've been conditioned your entire life. And now freedom is a possibility, freedom of choice. You know, there was this wonderful Facebook posting I saw, a bunch of shoes walking in one direction. And then off to the side was a pair of shoes that were unlaced and empty, and bare feet were going. That the guy had got his choice back. He took off his shoes. He wasn't part of the group any longer. He needed, he needed to self-validate. He needed to figure out who he was and what his life meant. He needed to give meaning to his life. And a lot of us, a lot of us, at some stage in our life, have that desire, if you will, but don't have the opportunity or circumstances to pursue it because we have committed ourselves to a particular lifestyle. So now you get a bunch of guys like me with these brown robes and no hair, some of it natural, some of it, you know, because I have a buzz cutter. And, and this one guy said, we're, there were a few monks at a conference and I was sitting at the table and this guy comes up He's not a monk, and he sits down with us, and he says to us, straight on, straight on, he says, you guys really scare me. Doug Powers was his name. You guys really scare me, because you guys all want to be free. We don't know what to expect from that. You don't fit into any particular molds anymore. So you have a very strong discipline, and you have a foundation in morality. But what does it mean to be free? So, for a Buddhist, let me tell you what it means to be free. Free from suffering. That's it. You don't get, you're not free from traffic laws, you know. You're not free from eating. You always got to eat. You got to sleep once in a while. But you can be free from suffering. But in order to be free from suffering, you need to get your choice back. And you need to choose. And sometimes we need a powerful life-changing event to stimulate us in that direction, which is exactly what happened to me. I was stimulated that one day at the age of 28 because death was looking me in the face. And he'd always been there. He had been my co-pilot the whole life. But I had been so distracted by life that I forgot about death. Wow. Cool. Thankfully, though, I found the Dharma. I found a way to die well. And I figured out who needs to die? And that was the last talk I gave, which is doing pretty well on iTunes. So who dies? Our ego. Man, that ego does not want to go. Our body doesn't know it's alive. 
just wants to rest. But the ego, man, it just clings to life to the last moment. So how can we let the ego let go? How can we understand that it needs to feel comfortable in every situation, even in the death situation, because for us as Buddhists, we need to die now so we can live again. And that's proven every day we sit down and meditate, that you die into the moment you first sit, and you're reborn when you get up. And who says rebirth is easy? You sit there for an hour and a half, you're reborn into the next person, your knees hurt, your back hurts, you forget where the door is, you've got to go to the bathroom. Man, even rebirth is difficult. But you've got to die first before you're reborn. With one exception. Buddha found it. Buddha's the only one I've ever heard talk about it. The Buddha said, I teach a way to exist without being reborn. I teach a way to exist without birth. And if you can exist without birth, you eliminate death. Because death always follows birth. So what did he say? He says, nirvana is how to exist without being reborn. Every Buddhist practicing Pure Land or Zen or whatever they do, ultimately want nirvana. Because nirvana is ultimately the end of suffering and permanent happiness because there is no suffering in life or death. Or rebirth again and again and again to come back and visit this world of suffering and sometimes to visit the hell realms of suffering like the animal realms. You know, that's the first hell realm in Buddhism. The dogs and cats all live in that realm. And if you see how terribly treated these dogs and cats can be around the wrong people, you'd never want to be reborn as a dog or a cat unless you come to our meditation center and live in the backyard. And I'll feed you twice a day and pet you too. So we have this stuff. We have this this way of looking at the world, we're trying to give meaning to it, we understand that somehow the meaning of our life is connected to suffering, whether it be why we suffer or how to end our suffering. And then we come to this place of acceptance. Yes, the world is a terrible place. Yes, it always has been. I can't give meaning to that other than, yes, that's the way it is. So for a Buddhist, do we stop there and just accept the profound suffering and pain that humans are experiencing and other animals every moment of every day? No. We try to pitch in. We try to get involved. Why? Not to change the world. You can't change the world. We don't live long enough. There aren't enough of us together thinking the same way to change hardly anything at all. Even a stop sign. You've got to go to city council. We need a stop sign. They vote on it. They don't like it. They do like it. That's a stop sign. We're talking about the world and how uncomfortable it is. Can't do it. But we can do something about our suffering in the world, and then we can apply that to others. So we don't help people because they need our help. We don't help people because we can make a difference in their life. I don't think we can. We help people because we explain or share with them how we ended our suffering. And maybe that would be useful to them. So we get involved with the world because people are suffering, not because we can change it. 
We want to be the catalyst for their change. But then you can't even help them other than share your practice in any way you can, which generally speaking, if you're not giving Dharma talks once a week, might be a little iffy. Can they understand what I've experienced? Because I don't fully understand it either. I find it hard to put into words. Will they hear what I try to say? And after giving at least a thousand Dharma presentations in the 20 years I've been ordained, I look out there and I realize most people hear only what they are able to hear. And they'll come up to me afterwards and say, that was really wonderful. I love the way you put it. I loved it when you said blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't say that. <laughs> but maybe next time I will, you know. It's, it's funny how that works. So not everybody's going to hear it. Not everybody can see it. They work at their own level, whatever level that is. So I come and I explain what I've come to understand because I probably have more time to think than you guys. You've got, you've got a lot of responsibilities, a lot of commitments. I have fewer. I have more time. I can reflect. I can ruminate. And, and then I can try to put it into a, a, a verbal model that will be understood and perhaps be linear even instead of just present moment stuff because that's really hard to hear. That's poetry as far as I'm concerned. But I'm storytelling, I have a narrative, and this is what I've come to understand. And then I don't even expect you to take it with you outside. I just want to bounce it off your eardrums, and and maybe 10 years from now, one word will go, man, that is so cool. That's what Kusla meant, you know? And by then I'll be dead, but it's okay. The words will live on in all the heads that have heard me speak, you know? So, the meaning of life is... Give your life a meaning. Whatever you're doing is important to you, or you probably wouldn't be doing it. So whatever it is, that could be the beginning of the meaning of your life. And then if you're lucky enough to find Buddhism, and lucky enough to practice, and meditate, maybe the meaning will deepen and become much more personal to you. But when it becomes really personal to you, it may not mean anything else to anybody. Because it's your meaning, because it's your life. Thank you for listening.